Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2016. It is a new year, and we are in a new series. We are in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. The title of this morning's message is Living in Babylon, and hopefully by the end of this message you'll understand what that title means. If uh, someone were to ask you, how has Canada changed over the last 50 years, how would you respond? Maybe you would talk about global warming and you'd say, oh, the weather patterns have changed dramatically across the country. Maybe you would think about the communications revolution. Oh, now you can talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime. It's amazing. Or you might talk about the religious shift in Canada. In 1950, 67% of Canadians would have been in church on any given Sunday. Isn't that remarkable? It's hard to believe that. That would have included all Catholics and Protestants. 67% of Canadians would have been in church on a given Sunday. And today, in 2016, it would be around 12%. So a tremendous shift. And if you think of Vancouver, then statistics tell us that about 3% of the metro Vancouver area would be in an evangelical church on a Sunday. 3% evangelical. So a tremendous shift in our society. On Christmas Day, Doug Saunders, he's a journalist for the Globe and Mail, he wrote a column, and I'll just quote him, and I think what he writes represents the thinking of many. For most of us, this month of nominally religious celebrations, he's referring to the month of December, has become an awkward but generally happy compromise between the sacred and the profane. We are the animal that created God. He was one of our most popular inventions, one which in his universality renders himself optional. Let this season be an example. Whether you love him or leave him, let it bring out the best in you. (laughs) Sobering, isn't it? We rely on a season, on a month of the year, some religious celebrations to bring out the best in us. This optional God that people celebrate in different ways. So, as a Canadian society, in 1950, many families would have gathered around the Scriptures. In the school system, you would have heard the Scriptures read to you. Many people actually contemplated God being at the center of their lives, God determining what family life would look like, what their work life would look like, how they should understand their sexuality. God was very much a part of the thought life of Canadian society. And today we find God to be on the margins. Many Canadians would believe that God does not really dominate anything, that almost all of life is outside of his domain, and God should be relegated to the private spirituality of a few that still want to believe in him. And that minority should remain quiet. So how do we live in this new Canada, in this new reality? How should we live? How do we remain undaunted, courageous in 2016? I think the book of Daniel is probably one of the best books in all of Scripture to help us understand what it looks like to live our faith in a hostile world. Daniel and his friends, they found themselves in the furnace of a pagan society. And they had to understand who their God was. The Scripture that we'll study today will tell us that God reigns over all of history, no matter what the season, 
no matter what the circumstance, and that he is more than able to favor, to equip, and to sustain his servants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that we do not enter 2016 on our own. We enter with you. You abide within us by your spirit. You counsel us. You instruct us. You have gifted us with your family, your body, Jesus. And we can walk with our brothers and sisters. And we ask this morning that you teach us, that you open your word to us, that we would understand your word and know how to live it. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. May nothing that I say stray from your word. May only your truth remain with your people for their equipping, for their edification, for your glory, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. This is page 737 if you're in the English Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, we need a little bit of historical background to understand what we're reading in these verses. These words were written almost 2,600 years ago. The year is 605 B.C. In the year 605 B.C., the kingdom of Israel already had been divided, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The ten tribes of Israel to the north had already been taken into exile by the Assyrian army in 722 BC. What remained was Judah and Benjamin to the south. Now Nebuchadnezzar is invading Jerusalem and he besieges it. And he takes the Jewish elite back to Babylon and also takes some of the vessels, the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. You see the word Shinar in these verses. He brought them to the land of Shinar there in verse 2. Shinar is a reference to Babylon. You'll probably remember from the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. That tower was built on the plain of Shinar. Babylon is this kingdom that represents rebellion against God, a kingdom organized in opposition to God. It represents false religion, pride. From Genesis chapter 11 all the way through the scriptures to Revelation chapter 18. In this story, Nebuchadnezzar represents that Babylon. This deportation in 605, it was the first of three. Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem in 605, then Babylon returns in 597, and then finally in 587, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed. So this is the first of three. And in this first of three, the Jewish elite is being taken back to Babylon. If you read about this event, for example, in the annals of history in Babylon, you would read the same details. You'd get the same perspective. Nebuchadnezzar overpowering Judah, King Jehoiakim. But what's God's perspective? Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So the Lord is actually giving Jehoiakim and Judah. It's not because Nebuchadnezzar is so powerful It's because the Lord actually decides to give his people into the hands of a foreign power. 
Now, why would God decide this? Why would he do this to his own people? He ordains it because of a lengthy, lengthy history of disobedience. For centuries, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, have resisted the word of the Lord. They have disobeyed the commandments that they received through Moses. Here's an example of what was happening in that day. King Jehoiakim, he receives the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So God's heart is that the people repent. How does Jehoiakim respond? Chapter 36 of Jeremiah, verse 21. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments so Jehoiakim and his servants, they utterly despise the word of God. They, they burn it. But God is faithful to his word. He will keep his word. He has already spoken what he will do to his people should they resist his word, should they persist in their disobedience. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be laid waste. And so Israel has utterly disregarded the word of God. And because of their disobedience, God gives. It comes from God's hand. That's what the word gave means. God gives Jehoiakim and the people of Judah into the hands of a foreign power. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful ruler of his day. But Israel is not given to Nebuchadnezzar because of Nebuchadnezzar's power. It's because the Lord permits it, because he sanctions it, because he gives them over. Even in the most difficult moments, God has all of history in his hands, and he accomplishes his purposes. And even as he gives Israel, the land of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he is able to accomplish his deeper purposes in history. And we will see that as we read through Daniel, how God will accomplish his purposes through Daniel, his friends, and others that follow the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The people in exile will need to understand this, that God is present, he's active, and he's in control. A number of months ago, Ron Boyd McMillan was here, and he referenced what had happened in China. When Mao Zedong came to power in China in the 1960s, and he started what became known as the Cultural Revolution in China, his full intent was to eliminate the church. He destroyed churches, burned Bibles, imprisoned pastors... 
But even in that moment, God was sovereign over all of history. Mao Zedong didn't realize it, but he was actually an instrument in God's hands. And the Christian faith went, what became embedded in Chinese families, in Chinese culture, in a way that a 300 years of evangelism had never been able to accomplish. And so in the 1970s, when the church numbered about 2 million, it went through the fires of persecution and grew to what today is a church of, some say 60 million, the economists would say even 100 million, no one really knows. But the church has grown exponentially, and we have seen the largest revival in all of history. Why? Because God has all of history in his hands. He had Babylon in his hands, and he has China in his hands today. God is accomplishing his purposes. And this is true for us in Canada as well, as we enter 2016. God's will will be done. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, he was a son of the king of Babylon. His father died in 605 BC. He rose to the throne. Babylon had ruled the world for millennia. When he became king, it had not yet been restored to its former glory. And so that was his intent. I will restore the Babylon empire to its former glory. The city of Babylon will be the most magnificent in all the world. And I will use the most intelligent, the most capable from all over the empire to restore this magnificent kingdom. That's why he takes the elite of Judah. He also takes the sacred objects, the sacred objects from the temple. Why would he do that? Why does he take those objects and then place them in the treasure house of his God? Well, it's to communicate a message. You can imagine Daniel, a young man or one of his friends, going to a temple in Babylon to one of the Babylonian gods, maybe Marduk, Aku, Bel. These are the names of Babylonian gods. And so they'd enter this temple, and there they would find the temple vessels from Jerusalem. And the message would be clear. The God of Israel has been defeated. He's weak. It's the gods of Babylon that rule. What do they do to Daniel and his friends? What does Babylon do to them? Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's invaded Jerusalem, carries the elite of the Jewish nobility, of the Jewish royal family back to Babylon, and he separates the teenagers. The word used here in this passage would indicate that Daniel and his friends were about 15 years of age. Again, why the separation? Because he wants to use them to restore Babylon to its glory, its former glory. It's called brain drain here. Continues to happen to this day. They're to be used in empire building. What he probably does not know 
is that what he is doing is actually fulfilling a word that God has already spoken. Do you remember when the envoys from Babylon came to Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah? They came to visit Hezekiah because Hezekiah had been ill and they had heard, received word that he had been healed. And they came to understand why, to learn why. What Hezekiah does is he opens up his treasure house and shows everything that he owns to the envoys of Babylon. And he does that because he wants to enter into a political alliance with them. God had saved him from the Assyrian emperor. God had healed him. But at this moment in his life, Hezekiah turns and looks to Babylon for his salvation. And the Lord speaks to the prophet Hezekiah. Hezekiah, sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, and this is what he says. Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming, when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This word was spoken a hundred years before Daniel and his friends were taken. So the Lord is fulfilling his word. The Lord is always faithful to his word. Even in the most difficult moments, God is uncompromisingly faithful to his word. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he directs history. But actually, God is sovereign over all things. He's faithful to his word. Nebuchadnezzar separates the youth from the royal family. Look at his criteria. Without blemish, no physical defects. Good appearance, they're handsome young men. Skillful in all wisdom, they show aptitude for every kind of learning. Endowed with knowledge, they're they're well-informed young men. They understand learning, they're quick to understand And they're competent to stand in the king's palace. They're qualified to serve. Some commentators would say that they have the social graces to be in the king's presence. They're fit for the task. So Nebuchadnezzar is running his own Babylonian idol. It's interesting, isn't it, how the world's values have not changed over the last 2,600 years. We continue to look for the good-looking, for the intelligent, and those with social graces. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is looking for. How will he prepare them? Well, there's going to be a three-year reprogramming process. The first thing that he does is he separates them from the Jewish community. Separates them from those that might be able to mentor them in the ways of the God of Israel. The world's schemes remain unchanged. Separate God's people from godly influence. The second thing is that they're infused with Babylonian thought. Babylonian literature, Babylonian legends, Babylonian wisdom. Get these young men to think the way that Babylon thinks. Get them to forget their scriptures. Get them to forget the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Infuse them with Babylonian thinking. The world hasn't changed. The world's schemes remain unchanged. Saturate them with worldly thinking. Third, he feeds them the royal food. He feeds them the royal food so that they will begin to succumb to the pleasures of Babylon, compromise with the riches of Babylon, begin to think that their, their, their sustenance actually depends on the gods of Babylon, not on 
the God of Israel. Most people are more easily assimilated if they're well-fed, if they're entertained, they're provided for. When you think of our North American society, we're a well-fed, entertained, provided-for society. And the world system, its message to us every day is do not depend on the God who created the heavens and the earth. No! (laughs) Depend on yourself. Your sustenance comes from you and the things that the world provides for you. We give in. We surrender. Look at the name changes, verses 6 and 7. Did you notice the name changes? What's behind that? Well, each Hebrew name carries a divine name. Each Babylonian name carries a divine name. So Daniel, his name is God is my judge. And his name is changed to Belshazzar, which means Bel protects my life. Bel was the main god in Babylon. What's the message to him? The message to Daniel is, don't think that you're accountable to the God of Israel, that he is your judge. Your protection in Babylon, it depends on Bel, the Babylonian God. Hananiah, beautiful name. His name means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is the God of Israel, the God who is present to save. Yahweh is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach which means the order of Aku. Aku was the moon god in Babylon. He determined the times, the seasons. He's the giver of life. So the message to Hananiah is, don't think that you live by the grace of Yahweh. No, 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 no. Your days, your season of life, where you live today, it depends on Aku. Mishael means who is what God is. God's incomparable. Mishak means who is like Aku. Again, the message is clear. Aku is greater than the God of Israel. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. Abednego, servant of Nebu. Nebu was the God in Babylon who was responsible for the sciences, for wisdom, for literature. And so think of Azariah. He's, he's living now in a Babylonian context and the king wants him to be wise, to be knowledgeable, to be skillful. Which God will he look to for help? Well, the Babylonian messages depend on Nebu. Yahweh's not your helper. So their names are changed so that they will lose completely their religious and cultural identity. They will forget that God is their judge. They will forget that God is gracious. They will forget that there's none equal to Yahweh. They will forget that God will be gracious to them and help them in every circumstance. The world is trying to get them to be confused. And to this day, the world's scheme is to foster identity confusion. The world wants us to forget who God is and who we are. You see, the way we think about God The way that we think about God and the way that he relates to us determines how we will live. So, when reflect on your own life. Who is the God that you serve? And how much of life is under his domain? And how does that impact the way that you live? We're not a very religious society, and so we don't give names to things. But one of the messages that we hear all the time is, Think about yourself. You are at the center of the world. You first. Call this narcissism. Another message that we're bombarded with every day is think about your own pleasure. 
your own entertainment, hedonism. Another message is what really matters is the material, your stuff, what you accumulate. That's what gives value to your life. Here's a commercial that I heard this week. It's a commercial of a high-end car. It could be a commercial for anything. There's a wealthy man. He's strolling through his well-appointed home, and he speaks to the camera, and this is what he says. I'll read it. Why do we work so hard? For what? For this, for stuff. Other countries, they work. They stroll home. They stop by the cafe. They take August off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy-driven. Hard-working believers, that's why. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you've got to believe anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. (laughs) So you work all year long and only take two weeks off so that you can get the stuff. It's a message the world sends us. And if we're not informed by the scriptures, we succumb to the messaging. We assimilate. We become like the world around us. We begin to think that that high-end car actually will give us value and life. Do we carry the names of Daniel and his friends today? Do we wake up thinking, yes, God is my judge and I will be accountable to God for this day and for this year that we will live. All of history is in his hands. Do we wake up thinking, yeah, God is gracious. I live by his grace. He's given me another day. Do I wake up thinking, there's no one like God, and he satisfies my soul. I can live in Babylon, but the one that satisfies my soul, that fills me with life, it's God. It's Yahweh. He's my helper. I depend on him. Well, look at the way that Daniel and his friends respond to Babylon's schemes Chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave, there's that word gave again. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who have your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. We just went through the Christmas season. You probably had some good turkey, right? maybe a good buffet. One friend invited me to a hotel to a Christmas buffet. It was endless salad, meat, dessert, just a feast. Unbelievable. Daniel and his friends were offered that every day. (laughs) Eat from the king's table. A feast. How will they respond? Verse 8, 
But Daniel resolved. He determined something. It means that he purposed something in his heart. He makes a remarkable decision for a Jewish teenager, 15 years of age. Despite all of the pressure to assimilate, he says no. He draws a line. What motivates him? Well, maybe he won't eat because the food would have been offered to Babylonian gods. That was done in that day. But even the vegetables would have been offered. So maybe that is not the primary reason. Maybe he doesn't eat that food because it wasn't kosher. It wasn't prepared according to the Mosaic law. Most certainly he doesn't do it because he just does not want to submit to Babylon's ways. (laughs) He does not want the gods of Babylon to get the glory. He wants Yahweh to receive all the glory. And so Daniel and his friends, they say, no, we will not eat from the king's table. Give us water and vegetables. Maybe they remember the word spoken through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So Daniel and his friends, they say, you can call us by the names of other gods, but we know who God is. We know whom we serve. You can select us for your empire building, but we are consecrated to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and we will not bend. And verse 9 says a remarkable thing. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Another translation would be kindness and mercy. Something from God's hand. So here Daniel and his friends are in a hostile world. And the God who is above all things, who has all of history in his hands, he's able to give them from his hand favor and compassion. And at the end of the trial period, Daniel and his friends, they look healthier, they're fatter, better nourished than all the others. That's a miracle. Vegetables and water, and you get fatter? How does that happen? Even in a hostile context, God is more than able to favor his servants who purpose to honor him. Jonathan Edwards, in the 18th century, was a philosopher, a preacher, a theologian. He pastored. He became the president of Princeton University. He was a leading figure in the Great Awakening in America in the 18th century. But before anything like that happened in his life, he made some resolutions. When he was 19 years of age, so those of you who are much younger than I think about this, when he was 19 years of age, he wrote down 70 resolutions, things that he would live by. This is the time of New Year's resolutions, right? My New Year's resolutions don't last very long. The key question is, what have we resolved to do in life? What have we committed ourselves to? Jonathan Edwards made some resolutions. Here are four of them. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve never to do anything which I, if I should see in another, I should count a just occasion to despise him for, or to think any way the more meanly of him. 
Resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolve never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. So he purposed these things, he determined these things, he resolved these things in the private sphere, in his own heart at 19 years of age, writing them down. And then he lived them in the public sphere. What we live outside of our homes, in the workplace, in the school system, wherever God takes us, what we live, we resolve first in the private sphere, before God, how we will live. What have we resolved to do? God favors his servants who purpose to honor him. And then look at what God does. Verse 17, Daniel 1 verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all Of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So again, we see the word gave. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And here God gives Daniel and his friends wisdom in Babylonian literature, in Babylonian ways, knowledge and understanding. And he gives Daniel a special ability, the ability to understand, to discern all visions and dreams. As we walk through Daniel, we'll see how God uses Daniel for his purposes in Babylon. So they're equipped, they're gifted. When they go before Nebuchadnezzar, they're ten times better than all of his pagan advisors. They're uniquely positioned by God for his purposes in that day. And my question for you and for myself is, where has God positioned us? Where has God placed us in 2016? How has he equipped us for his purposes? Daniel and his friends, they were to live for the welfare of Babylon. It's interesting. They were in Babylon. But the prophetic word that came through Jeremiah was that they were to live for the good of that society. Look at Jeremiah 29, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Surprising word for the Jewish exiles. That they should actually live for the good of the society that they now live in. And that God will equip them for the good of that society, for the furtherance of God's purposes. Even in a hostile context, God is more than able to equip his servants for the furtherance of his purposes. It's true at that time, it's true for today. And then in verse 21 we read, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. First year of King Cyrus, that's 539 B.C. Cyrus is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He conquers Babylon. 66 years after Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon. So Daniel has been sustained by God through the reign of a number of Babylonian kings, two empires, 
Daniel serves in Babylon, he will serve in the kingdom of Medo-Persia as well. 66 years later, Daniel is still standing. God has sustained him. You see, even in a hostile context, God is more than able to sustain his servants, no matter what the circumstance. So if God was able to sustain Daniel in that world, in that Babylon, can he not sustain us in the Babylon of today? You know, every Christian longs for the Jerusalem above, right? Well, God has placed eternity in our hearts. We long for heaven. We long for life to be the way God wants it to be. But we live in Babylon. Jesus lived in a Babylon. But he knew who his father was, and he knew who he was. He understood God's purpose for his life. Before he went to the cross, he prayed a prayer for us. John chapter 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's speaking with his father. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Lord sends us into Babylon. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Jesus sets himself apart. He consecrates himself for the Father's purposes, and he walks faithfully to the cross. He's obedient to the end, and he dies. He gives his life so that we might be saved. Every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come around the food of the kingdom, and we recognize again, we remember the, what it cost our Savior for us to be redeemed, for us to receive eternal life. We are citizens of the kingdom. We are no longer members of Babylon. And this is by God's grace. Jesus set himself apart so that we might be set apart. So that we might consecrate ourselves, so that we might be sanctified in the truth. The truth is the word of God. And so as we walk into 2016, let's immerse ourselves in the scriptures so that we are not overwhelmed by the messaging of Babylon, so that we understand God's ways, so that we remember that God is our judge. Yes, we are accountable to God. He is our helper. There is none other like him. No God compares to him. He is the only one that can satisfy my soul, your soul. He reigns over all things, and he will reign forever. He was reigning in the days of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He was reigning in China during the days of Mount Zedong. He is reigning in our day in Canada. Jesus spent time in the Father's presence. He prayed and he fasted. We're going into a week of prayer and fasting. Pastor Ray referred to that. Wonderful booklet, Do Love Walk. Pick it up. Spend time in prayer and fasting this week so that you might focus on Jesus, so that you might spend time in his presence, be renewed by his spirit, be fed by his word, and understand that the God who is over all things has purposes for you in this week, in this year, his purposes for his glory.
God has positioned us here for this day. We are not to be of the world, but we are to be in the world. So that many might come to know Jesus. Men, I'd encourage you to to bring your friends to this men's breakfast. A courageous, bold man, Brian McConaughey. Men's breakfast on January the 16th. Courageous man who will challenge us to walk as Daniel did. The God of Daniel is our God. The Father that Jesus looked to is our Father. Even in the most difficult moments, God has all of history in his hands. He is faithful to his word, and he is more than able to favor his servants, to equip his servants, and to sustain his servants, no matter what the circumstance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May it encourage us, strengthen us. May we walk under the fullness of your Holy, under your anointing and the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we resolve to live for your glory, no matter what the cost. Out of gratitude, Jesus, for what you have done for us. We thank you that we don't walk through 2016 alone, that you will be with us in every situation, every circumstance. Thank you that you're present to counsel us, to lead us, to empower us. May we live with faith and courage. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.